0: I was thinking about this passage that we're about to read and what it it is teaching us and what it is showing us about our need for Christ if we are to live the Christian life in any sort of meaningful way, um, to live real life in general in any sort of meaningful way. It made me think back to when Christy and I first moved here. Uh, We first moved here. I remember uh, the apartment we had or condo or whatever that we had looked at and uh, the the leasing agent was showing it to us. And they told us before we moved this morning, we were on the trip down before we actually moved down, right? And we just had to secure the place. And this was almost six years ago. And um, and they told us, they said, now the microwave in this place is broken. We'll have to replace it. And I said, okay, I, I, that, that's fine. And so we went back to our place. Had a big yard sale right before we moved. That's what you do before you move. Had a big yard sale. Sold our microwave. Things like that. Got here. Microwave still didn't work. Microwave was not replaced. It was very upset by this in some ways because, you know, when you just moved, you know, the microwave is very handy, right? And so that's like 90% of the meals the first couple weeks and So they were like, oh, great, you know, and then as we were moving and we were packing and putting dishes in and things like that, there was a cabinet, right, above the above the microwave. And so I, I opened that cabinet to, to see what, what, you know, how much space it had, what we could put in there, and I noticed there was this thing called a plug, and it was not inserted in this thing called an outlet. And I thought, well, I wonder what happens if you put that plug in that outlet. So I plugged it in, Voila! The microwave uh, worked, which we were a little disappointed because this microwave was like from nineteen eighty something, and, uh, and so we we're like, great. So they're not going to replace the microwave, and so we plug it in. It works fine, right? And I'm like, man, you know, they told us that this thing didn't work, but it's amazing how well it works when it's plugged into the power source because microwaves do not come with batteries. Um, they do not come with self-contained power. They need power from outside of themselves. And what Jesus is going to teach us today is that you and I don't come with batteries either. We don't come with self-contained power to live the Christian life, to live an obedient life, to live the life that God requires, desires, demands, urges, longs that we live. We can't live an effective or fruitful Christian life apart from a source outside of ourselves giving us life, power, and vitality. And the last of the I Am statements by Jesus shows us that the Christian life can only be lived fruitfully and effectively for that matter, genuinely, in relationship with and reliance on the Lord Jesus. The Christian life is meant to be fruitful. It's meant to be fruitful. It's meant to be a life of ministry and service, a life of multiplication, a life of spiritual growth and maturity. It's meant to be fruitful. And here Jesus teaches us this very thing. So look with me in John chapter 15. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11. We'll read verses 1 through 11, John chapter 15. Jesus here has just told the disciples in the chapters leading up to this about his upcoming death. He's told them, told them in chapter 14, he's about to depart. He's also told them that one of them will betray him. And Judas has been sent away and is in the process of betraying the Lord Jesus. As the disciples is prepared to be launched into the next phase of ministry, one in which Jesus will not be with them in bodily form, but we know he's going to send the Spirit at Pentecost. This is some of Jesus' final hands-on teaching with his disciples before the cross. And you have to ask, who's sort of, okay, good analogy, Jesus, right? Vine and branches. Why did Jesus choose this analogy? It's a little foreign to us, unless you are, you know, on a vineyard or something. It's a little foreign to you because he's, he's, he's provoking the idea here, most likely, of a great vineyard. And in the Old Testament, <clears throat> the reason he picks this analogy is in the Old Testament, the picture of the vineyard was one God used to describe Israel. Throughout the Old Testament, Israel is described as Let me give you one example. Psalm 80, verses 9. The psalmist says, you brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. Now, who was the vine that was brought out of Egypt? That was Israel, right? The Exodus. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. Usually in the Old Testament, the illustration is negative, though, when you read about it. In Ezekiel, for instance, Israel is seen as a fruitless vine that is about to be judged. And so throughout the Old Testament, you see that picture. as Israel is God's vineyard, failing to bear the fruit that is intended, and therefore incurring the judgment of God. Now, it's been said, it's been pointed out by others, that in the Old Testament, what's being being shown there is that Israel was the funnel through which God's blessing was to flow to the world. Okay? And so they were to be a light into the nations, they were to be one who, who proclaimed the goodness and the glory of God to, to, to the nations far and wide and, and, to, and to point people to God and all His goodness. And Israel was to declare that glory, God's glory to the nations. But we see throughout the Old Testament Israel fail in that over and over and over again. In the New Testament Jesus comes on the scene and He begins to rebuke the leaders the, the Jewish leaders of that day for the ways they had wandered from God. And here Jesus is radically changing the game with this I am statement, which we've already talked about, portrays the idea that calling out of Exodus and Isaiah on the name of God and Yahweh and Jesus showing himself as as God in the flesh and then giving a description of something about Him He says, I am the true vine. In other words, it is now exclusively through me, Jesus says, that the blessing of God flows. All spiritual blessing and all fruitfulness comes only through me. Not through Israel, through me. You want to be blessed by God and be a blessing to this world? You want to have eternal impact on your neighbors, on your workplace, and on your family? That happens through Jesus and only through Jesus. It doesn't happen to anyone else. And that's what Jesus is sharing with us today. Jesus' statement shows us where true life and true fruitfulness for God's kingdom is found. It is found in Him. He is the vine. He is the true vine. And His followers... We see are merely branches. The source of life, the source of vitality, the power source is the vine. It's Jesus. So we see there's a vine dresser. That's the one that owns and tends the garden. That's the father. We see there's a vine. That's Jesus. And then we see there are branches coming off that vine that are meant to hold fruit. And that's believers. Supposed to be believers. Those associated with Christ. And as we look at those 11 verses, three truths... That this teaching reveals to us, okay? Three truths. Because Jesus is the vine and we are the branches, here are three things we need to know to, to understand and apply this truth to our life. Number one, God desires that you and me, that we, bear fruit. That's an overarching, obvious theme in this passage, we need to for a second. Jesus says in verse 2, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he, the Father, takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he proves that it may bear more fruit. In other words, the Father is tending to the garden. It is the branches that are inspected for fruit, not the vine. We know the vine is fruitful. That fruit grows on on the branches, but it is the vine that is the source of their fruitfulness. And so he goes and he expects the branches looking for fruit. And Jesus wants us to know that God wants people to bear fruit for his glory and that he expects Christ's followers to be fruitful with our lives. So what does that mean? What kind of fruit is he talking about? Right? We talk about fruit, all that. Fruit of the Spirit? That's not really what he's talking about here. Not that it doesn't have any connotation, but that's, this is before that passage was ever written. Many, but Jesus taught this before all that. What's he mean when he says fruit? Well, I believe it's a holistic picture, but let me read to you. I couldn't sum it up better than D.A. Carson does. And this is what D.A. Carson It's a little bit of a lengthy quote, so follow with me. He says, the fruit in the vine imagery, represents everything that is the product of effective prayer in Jesus' name. Remember that? He says, whatever you pray and ask in my name, be given to you right here in this passage. Including obedience to Jesus' commands, experience of Jesus' joy, love for one another, and witness to the world. This fruit is nothing less than the outcome of persevering dependence on the vine, driven by faith. Embracing all of the believer's life and the product of his witness. Carson goes on to note that the main focus, however, in this passage is the fruit of evangelism and the mission of Jesus. Is to talk about the fruit that remains. And this is a big reminder for us that the Christian life <laughs> is not primarily about us. It, 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 that when the Father is looking here and he's expecting fruit, it, it's not really primarily about us. As one preacher put it, God didn't save you and me so he could, we could simply miss hell and gain heaven but so that Jesus could pour his life out through us. All right? You are saved, and I am saved, to make an impact. We're saved to make a difference, to do something with our lives for the glory of God, for the kingdom of God. The idea that Christianity and following Christ is about praying your prayer so that you can go to heaven and then spending the rest of your life on earth trying not to mess up too bad is completely foreign from Scripture. That is not a biblical picture of Christianity. Missing hell, gaining heaven, that's what it's all about. Don't mess up too bad, you know? Keep your nose clean. Don't do anything stupid, right? That's not Christianity. That's not the main point. That's not the big idea. It's not in the Bible. Yes, we gain heaven through faith in Jesus. John's gospel has shown us in believing, though, we get life, eternal life, and that life begins in the here and now. God reconciles us to himself so that we may participate in his mission. It gives us the ministry of reconciliation. Our salvation is an enlistment in mission. In that very ministry of reconciliation that the Apostle Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 5. See, fruit, and this idea of the product, this product of fruit that emanates from our life as we follow Christ, this idea of the way we begin to obey God, the way we begin to love God and love others, the way we begin to witness for Christ, and all these sort of things. Fruit is not about the branch. The branch doesn't bear fruit for itself. Branches bear fruit for others, right? We bear fruit for God. And our fruit benefits His kingdom and all people. I've never witnessed an apple tree eat an apple. Never. Never, never, never seen it done. I've, I've, I've never walked through a garden and seen the garden like devouring itself. You know, I've seen insects devour the garden. Our fruit does not exist for us. That's not the the point of fruitfulness is not for us. The point of fruitfulness is for God's glory and the impact it has on others. If the fruit is for something greater than itself, how much what does that say? It tells us the Christian life is not supposed to be a selfish endeavor. Our fruit is for God's glory and for the good of others, our neighbor, but just as the apple tree. Is in its sweet spot, producing apples. So you and I are in our sweet spot when we're bearing spiritual fruit. While the fruit is not ultimately for us, you will never, we'll talk about this in a minute, have more of a sense of meaning and purpose and joy in your life than when you are bearing fruit unto the glory of God. You are created for that purpose. Just as the apple tree was created to bear apples and the flower was created to bloom, you are created for fruitfulness. It can be easy for Christians, though for all of us, for any of us, myself included, to begin to live the Christian life in a self-focused, selfish way. But the Father's looking for fruit. He desires fruit. We read the Bible, though, when we feel like we need it. We pray when we're desperate. We make church about us and our preferences. We sit as critics and discuss as sages rather than concern ourselves with fruitfulness. It's our fruitfulness that glorifies God and benefits others. God expects us to share Jesus, to participate actively in people coming to Christ as the gospel advances, and spreading his word, and helping people trust and follow Jesus. Our lives should undergird that as he changes our character to look more and more like Christ. And as we grow to love Jesus and and others more, we will not help but be able to want the two to meet, Jesus and others. And God is actively working in the life of every believer to see more and more fruit produced. As it tells, notice it says if the branch does bear fruit, which all the ones that truly in Christ do, says he prunes it, that it may bear more fruit. Since he takes away and burns the branches that don't bear fruit, this tells us that all the branches are bearing some fruit, all the true branches, and some more than others. But he's working that we all bear increasingly more fruit. Let me ask you, when you hear that, this analogy of he prunes, does that sound pleasant? For if you're the branch, it's not, Right? It's a kind of a painful picture. A painful, messy process that in the end is good for the branch because the purpose of the branch is not overgrowth and sloppy bunch of dry twigs. The purpose is fruit. So he cuts and he trims. And God prunes you and me through discipline. Hebrews 12 talks about how the Lord disciplines his children. That he loves. It says in Hebrews 12, 11, for the moment, all discipline discipline for God discipline in general seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. It's not fun. <laughs> it's not even pleasant. It's painful at the time. But it bears the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who are God is working even in the pain in our lives to help us become more like Jesus so that we all we think about this in context, I mean, we understand what it means. We, we, we understand that more than plants need to be pruned, people need to. We do that when we parent. We discipline our children. We give them rules, right? We, we give them boundaries. We allow them to do some things for themselves, even when it's harder, right? No, you're going to pick up the room this time, even though it's going to take 45 minutes instead of three. Because we know it's a part of the painful process, right, of trying to get them to be a little more fruitful in that area. Coaches discipline their players and they put them through all sorts of training. And it's, I, mean, I remember in high school playing basketball and I was like, you know, once I realized I was never gonna get to play, I was just gonna get to participate in the, what they call suicides, right? These running back and forth, back and forth, back and forth is what they're called. Like I thought, the whole team loses, I didn't play, I run the same amount of laps as the guy who gets all the shots, right? That's not fun. Painful process, though, of discipline, of trying to make the team better. We get this. No discipline, no difficulty, no trial for the Christian. No pain will be wasted in them. God truly works, as Romans says, Romans 8, all things are good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. And the good He's working those things towards, if you read Romans 8, is Christ's lightness. That is not something we will fully realize in this life. God desires we bear fruit, and he uses the trials of life, the teaching of the word of God, godly relationships in our life to make us more and more fruitful. God is at work pruning and working in our lives. Notice that those who do not bear fruit, he says, he takes away. He removes. Later it says the branches who do not abide in Christ are burned with fire, Jesus says, The picture is (laughs) clear. Those who are not truly in Christ but are only associated with him loosely through profession, attachment to a church. Those that may call themselves Christian but who aren't truly really converted, they are the fruitless branches who ultimately suffer the judgment of the vine dresser. Right there in his right before this, you are about to get a very vivid picture of this, with Judas who had been with the twelve this whole time following Jesus. He was the treasurer. He was, he was, he was trusted, in other words. He would betray Christ, hang himself, die unrepentant. The scriptures refer to him as the son of damnation. <laughs> it's not how you refer to a repentant person. Those who do not bear fruit, those who are not in Christ, ultimately they do fall away. Ultimately, they are taken away. Ultimately, they are judged for their sin. God desires to expect fruit. And A fruitless Christian who is simply trying to escape judgment has no desire to live and bear fruit for Christ's kingdom It's a foreign idea to God. Christians bear fruit; God expects it. So the question is, how do we do it? <laughs> how do we bear it? And that's why Jesus' whole point is: is God expects fruit? I am the vine; you are the branches. You bear fruit by abiding in me. So number two, abiding in Christ is the only way we can bear fruit. It's the only way. He's already you're clean because of the word I've spoken to you is is teaching and the body of that in Christ himself. If you're a believer that you have been made clean by Christ and by the power of his gospel, but he says, abide in me. That means to remain in me or continue in me. He's calling us to continue in relationship with him, relying on him for all we need. We can't bear fruit in our own power. We need the life of the vine flowing, pulsating through us. Branches are useless on their own, okay? Now listen. I went and dug this out of one of our trees today. I meant to do this at home and I forgot, so I thought, maybe we have a dead tree somewhere on our property. Luckily for me, that's not good for us, we did. And so one of our trees had um, broken a limb and had it hanging out out here on the sidewalk like this, and I just pulled it down, right? So that's just a good dead branch. And this thing has absolutely zero chance at bearing fruit. I can dig a hole out in the dirt it in there, you know, look like Charlie Brown's Christmas tree. It's not going to bear fruit. Right? I can put some miracle grow on it. Right? I can pray over it, lay hands on it. Right? I can do all those sort of things. No matter what I do, it's not going to bear fruit. Well, why is that? It has become detached from its life source. The tree that it was once attached to. And so, so it's not going to bear fruit. There's just no chance of that happening. It is it is in desperate need of life that it cannot just produce within itself. And Jesus says, you and I are like this. Apart from abiding in Him, apart from life in Him, relying on Him, trusting in Him, walking in daily relationship with Him, you have no—you have just as much chance of bearing true fruit for the glory of God as this tree does, springing forth some leaves and flowers on its own. It is not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. The detached branch, the detached branch from the vine has no chance. In fact, could I convince you this morning that this branch was alive if it never showed signs of life? Can I tell you a No, 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 no it's, just, it's just living, I'm telling you. It's living. Go put it in your yard. That's a living. That's a living. You, you would not believe that, right? You'd say either it's dead and, and maybe even the, maybe the whole tree that it came from is dead. Now, we know something. Jesus isn't dead. Right? He's alive. There's nothing wrong with the vine. So, someone who claims to follow Jesus, who never bears fruit, either Jesus is dead or they are. My bet's on them. The vine does not fail. Someone who claims the name of Jesus, who never bears fruit, is testifying with their life that Jesus is in fact dead. But he's alive. And the branch can only bear fruit attached to the living source. The same is true for you and me. If you don't know Christ, you need to discover life that is only found in him through faith in him. You need to, as Jesus said, be made clean by his word. Believe the gospel that he came to preach. Repent for the kingdom of God is in, that the Son of God has come and died in our place on the cross, has risen again, and that if we'll turn from our sin and embrace Him by faith, we connect to the life source and we begin to bear fruit. And for every believer in the room, as one who is in relationship with Jesus, we have to live like that is true daily. Because Jesus says, apart from me, He goes on to say, you can do nothing. Nothing. Sure, you can live your life. You can even live a moral life, a religious life. You can go to church, do ministry, lead, serve, but you cannot bear lasting fruit for eternity apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. The flesh cannot produce the work of the Spirit. Jesus says you must abide. You must remain in me. You must remain in me. And you bear fruit by what? Abiding. By ab- Abiding. I can't make this branch bear fruit by inspecting it every day. I can come every day and look at it. It's not going to start growing. The only way that the branch can begin to bear fruit is if it is abiding in the life source. And the same is true for you and I. It's not about pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps and doing it better and stronger and planting it in deeper dirt and all that sort of thing. No, no, no. It, it needs to be connected to the life source. And so do you know. We have to abide in Christ. Well, what does that look like? It means daily reliance on Him. Now, if you're If you're truly in Christ, if you're a believer, you are in Christ. You are abiding in Christ in that sense. But we, even us, even believers, right, can functionally live like we're not abiding in Christ. Not practice that in seasons of our life. And not see the fruit we should see. So what are the characteristics? What does it look like when someone's abiding in Christ? I'm always pointing you To the ESV study Bible. Man, if you don't have one, go get you one. It's really good. If you've got it, right there in the notes, it lays out so it's right there in the passage, the characteristics, right? Trust. Right? That's that's where the relationships form. That's how we know we're abiding in Christ in the first place. We believe, we we trust, we have faith in him. There's no abiding apart from faith union with Christ. As we abide with him daily, we are trusting him, walking by faith. He empowers us to fruitfulness as we rely on him. The believer, the true believer, knows we can't do it. So we're driven to faith in him. In verse 7, Jesus says prayer. But not only that, I might I go a step further and say answered prayer? That's really what he points to there. People who abide are praying people. We can't abide and not pray. He tells us we will see answers to our prayers as we abide and as his word abides in us in <laughs> seven, And when you abide in Christ, walking with him by faith, and his word works in you, he says, your word abides. You're, as, you're, as my word abides in you and you abide in me, you'll pray. Whatever you ask for, you receipt. You know what I'm about? Okay, listen. Why is that? What's a very important part is as his word abides in us. Because it's his word that transforms us and changes us and molds us so we don't pray silly, selfish things that he has no intention of answering. Many times the reason we don't see answers to our prayers is because we're praying for things God never promised to answer or bless. But there are certain prayers that you can pray that he is, man, he wants to answer that. He's wanting us to ask that prayer. And as we get in his word, our prayers become more God-focused, God-centered, more mission-focused. We begin to pray for the things he wants us to pray for. The fruit we produce is connected to our prayer lives. You cannot miss it in this passage. Obedience, verse 10, as we keep his commands, we abide in his love just as he is with the Father and abides in his Father's love. Those that know they are loved by Jesus and those that love Jesus, and earlier chapters talking about this, our obedience to Jesus flows from the fact that we love Him. And we love Him as He would tell us in 1 John because He first loved us. And Jesus said, if you love me, what? keep my commandments. That's how we show and demonstrate our love. We have a relationship built on love that produces obedience. And if you're abiding, you will be obeying. It's a characteristic of those who abide. Those that abide by faith ultimately live obedient lives. Those that refuse to obey, they're not abiding in Christ. Or When we disobey as Christians, in that moment, we're functioning like we're not abiding, we're not relying, we're not resting in, we're not trusting in Christ. Even though deep in our heart we are, in that moment, we're not functioning that way. Joy is another characteristic. We'll talk about this one more in a minute, but in verse 11, Jesus shares, the, He says, I share these truths so that you'll have joy. Your joy will be full, my joy will be. Christian life goes from drudgery jo- to joyful when it is lived, abiding in Christ. And if the Christian life is not a joy to us, we're not abiding as we should be. We're seeking to do it in our power. When we're living lives of disobedience, when our prayer lives are void, of, are, are void altogether, or they're just self indulgent diatribes where we give God our list of what we want Him to do for us today as we make our wish, when the Christian life has become just heavy and drudgeful and boring to us, we are exhibiting that we're not abiding. When that's the case, it is no wonder we're not bearing fruit as we should be. And we won't. Our lives become focused on us rather than Jesus' mission. The Christian life becomes like, has God done for me lately? And we become people who would rather explain our disobedience away than repent and walk in obedience to Jesus. It all falls apart when we don't dance that's why, we, that's why we need the spiritual disciplines in our life. That's why we need time alone with God and the Word and prayer. It's why we need to gather weekly for worship with other believers. This is why, that's why we do things like take the Lord's Supper from time to time when we gather together. They all remind us to abide. All those things remind us to abide. Time alone with God is the way we practically practice abiding every day. We listen to His Word in faith, expecting to hear something. We pray. We pour our hearts out to Him. We, we're practically practicing A reality is that we have a relationship with God through Jesus, and we're practicing that in that time alone with God. We come together at church, we gather with other branches, so to speak, so that we can be challenged and stirred, and God uses his church and his pruning work. We are a community of people, we're supposed to be, who are humbly confessing our dire need for Jesus alone for life and salvation. If we show up at church this morning with the right intentions, we are corporately confessing our need to abide, our need for a source outside of ourselves for life and the Lord's supper. We remind ourselves that apart from faith and cross we're lost, we're dead, that Jesus is our life and that he had to die to give us life. And Christ laid down his life and took it up again that we might be his fruit bearing people. All these things and others are meant to foster that idea that we are to rely on daily Christ for our sustenance. Now, when we are abiding and therefore bearing fruit, an amazing thing happens. The Christian life clicks. It clicks. You know what I mean? How you can be doing something, and it, just feel, it just feels off, it doesn't feel right, you're not in a rhythm, it feels off-kilter, whatever, you can be that way at work, you can be that way uh, if you played sports, you can be that way on a baseball field or a basketball field. You can feel that in a relationship with someone, Something's just off, Right? The Christian life could just fill off, too. But when we're abiding, everything clicks. Number three, purpose and joy are found through fruitfully abiding in Christ. True purpose in life and true joy in life are found through fruitfully abiding in Christ. Look at verse 8. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so prove to be my disciples. So first, God is glorified. We prove, he says, to be genuine followers of Christ as we bear fruit. We only bear fruit as we abide. So, as we fruitfully abide in Christ... We prove ourselves to be real Christians. We're not saved by our fruit. He does not say that. We are saved by Jesus as we trust Him, but all that trust Him abide. The New Testament goes on to great lengths to make sure we know that if we're truly belonging to Jesus, we're going to bear fruit. And we will be different, and we'll make a difference. And ultimately, he says, that fruitfulness that proves that we're his disciples ultimately is how he glorifies the Father. So we are participating in this. As we abide and bear fruit, God the Father gets the glory. The Father longs to see Jesus glorified. We learn that in John's Gospel. Jesus longs to see the Father glorified. We learn that in John's Gospel. And as we bear fruit, we glorify the Father through Jesus. Because Jesus glorifies God by producing fruitful branches. What this means is that you are being invited into an incredible relationship. That you are invited to be a part of glorifying the Father along with Jesus as He produces fruit through your life. You connect Him by faith. It's an incredible one. And it's why God put you on earth. You are created for God. Meaning and purpose and life is found in Him. Isaiah 43, 7, one of my favorite passages about this. God says, Everyone who is called by my name, whom I, talking about who called forth, he says, Everyone who's called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Created for my glory, whom I formed and made. That is why we're made. We're created and made by God for God. When you participate in giving glory to God through your life, you are reconnecting with the very purpose God made you for. Hence, since you have that purpose and you're connecting with that purpose, your joy is full. Jesus says we'll have joy, true, lasting, eternal joy. It makes sense that as we glorify God through abiding in Christ and bearing fruit, therefore connecting with the purpose God made, made us for, which is glorifying God in Christ, knowing God, becoming like Christ, bearing fruit for Him as we share him with others, makes sense that we'd be filled with joy. How can we not? Verses 9 and 10 show us that as we walk with Christ in obedience by faith, we abide in His love. So look at this. Just in verses 8 through 11 there, John 15, we see God's glory, a love relationship with Christ, faith-filled obedience to Christ, and our joy, and they're all connected. They're all connected they meet in our abiding in Christ. Verse 11. He says, I've spoken these things to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Full. That's a great word, right? He says, I want you to have a full measure of joy that you can have and that only comes through me. Listen, church, the church, should be the most joyful place on the planet. I fully believe that. We're the only ones that can have joy made Only the church can have that. I'm not talking about some silly goofiness like we're all well, laughing at us and we're just silly and stupid. That's not what we That's not the point that Jesus is making. I'm talking about weighty, earthy joy. Jesus is joy in us. The kind of joy that was crucified this joy set before him. So that even in difficulty, we have a sense of purpose and need. People should come into the local church and see that there is a deep and abiding joy unlike anything they can find in the world. At work or on a golf course or at a bar or anywhere else. Joy that can't be taken. Joy that can't be stolen. Joy that can't be crushed. And joy that can't be killed those that abide and bear fruit have that kind of joy. It doesn't mean we walk around with a faint grin on our face all the time. It means that even when we just don't even really have it in us to smile, because life has been going so hard, that deep in our soul there is a rest and a peace and a joy because we know whose we are and who we are, and that he's working ultimately all things together for our good for us more. It's not a, a joy like, you don't understand what's going on in life it's a joy because you have a deeper understanding about what's going on in life how how about we talk about growing in joy we talk a lot about growing right spiritually growing, numerically growing how 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 do we grow in joy I want that a What will give us the most joy in life will also bring God the most glory in our lives. Do you see that? The very thing that brings God glory is the very thing that gives you joy. Our eternal happiness and God's eternal glory are not at war. They are reconciled through faith in Jesus as he transforms our hearts to love and adore him and we begin to long to live for him and for his purposes something higher than our own pleasures. And we long to glorify him, and we get joy, and God gets glory. Jesus taught this passage to the disciples before going to the cross. Right on, I mean, he's, a, he's, he's headed there, it's coming imminently. Some would say this about the very night before, where he would go and he would die for their sin, and he would die for our sin. But we know, as we live, a couple of thousand years later, we know the whole story. We know he didn't just die there, he rose again three days later. But it makes sense when you know what's about to happen. That Peter's about to deny him. in just a day; That Judas is in the middle of betraying and selling him out. That all of them are going to scatter. It makes sense that Jesus looks up and one of his last teachings is, says, Remain in me. Because you will not bear fruit apart from me. Two thousand years later, we know what happened. We have the whole story, and we hear these words, and we know they come from a Savior who died and who rose again. How much more should we abide? How much more should we take heart? At this? How much more should we know it? Should we realize, lest we be a Judas or lest we be Peter? How much more should we abide? Maybe today, maybe today, you need to be connected to the life source, divine. Maybe you've never trusted Jesus. There's no fruit. No fruit. I hear some people, they talk so confidently about their faith. Oh, I've never doubted one time. I asked Jesus to be my Lord and Savior when I was whatever years old, and I've, ne- I've never had a doubt. There's not necessarily fruit there. Such confidence. I don't know whether to admire that or fear for them. I think I fear for them. Jesus says, if you're mine, if you're in the vine, you're going to bear fruit. Do you need the life source? Have you ever genuinely trusted? Not perfectly, that's not the point. You, those of you who've been here, you know enough, but that's not the point. But there should be fruit. There should be life emanating from us that we're connected by. We should be not like the dead branch of the floor. And for every believer, I want to ask this. Are we abiding as we should be? Is our life filled with the characteristics of abiding? Trust and obedience and prayer. Joy. Is the Christian life fruitful for us? Is it joyful for us? Has it become drudgery for us? If it has, the the problem is our abiding, functionally. We're not abiding like we should be. We're trying to do it in our own power. We're trying to produce it in our own strength doing it disconnected from Christ. We're not walking in an obedient relationship with Him. You can't abide if you're not trusting Him. You can't abide if you're not obeying Him. Cannot, we cannot do it if we're not relying on trusting and following Jesus. You won't bear more fruit by better examining your fruit. You won't bear more fruit by putting some muscle into it. You need to abide in the daily relationship with Jesus. And if we will do that, we will bear so much fruit. We will bear so much fruit. We'll bring so much glory to God. That's my prayer for us this morning. Is that God will raise up fruitful branches that are connected to the vine. Let's pray.